This is the time of year where um, people do make New Year's resolutions. How many of you guys have already been thinking through this and there's some things that you want to focus on in 2013? How many people here have actually done that so far? Be honest. So three, four people, four people. So the majority of people here are liars, bearing false witness. Um, actually, you know, the older you get, you just don't do it anymore because you know that you can't do them and uh, you pretty much just quit and give up, right? And that's kind of like this surrender to the gospel thing, I hope. Um, but this is the time of year where people, they really kind of reflect on where they've been, things that they've done, choices that they've made, and, and they now consider the possibilities for the next year. Resolutions are basically goals that people set for the coming year. Um, what kind of resolutions do people make? Uh, well, I have the top 10 most popular ones. You can put them up on the screen for me. The, this is, these are like, go ahead and put that next slide up. Yeah, these, these are them right here. <laughs> They're just funny, right? Drink less alcohol. Um, I guess that's a pretty good one. If you drink a lot of alcohol, eat healthy food, uh, get a better education. Davis High wasn't enough, I guess. Um, get a better job. How many people in here actually, like, at times wish that they had a better job? I can't put my hand up because I work at this church. That would be terrible. I mean, pray for a better job all the time. We pay you. Oh, my bad. Um, but right, better job. Uh, get fit. You just heard me complain about feeling like a beef sandwich. That'd probably help. Lose weight, right? Lose weight, that's a huge one. Manage debt. How about get rid of debt, right? Manage debt. I've got to get better at managing all my debt. What the heck does that mean? Better at paying your bills? I don't know. Quit smoking. Anyone in here an ex-smoker? I, I quit smoking in 95. That was like the hardest thing I ever had to do. It was a nightmare. It was terrible. Um, I lost a bunch of teeth because I switched to hard candy, uh, the lesser of two evils. But I did quit. But quitting smoking is, that's a huge one, right? A lot of people smoke, and, and, and smoking isn't like cool anymore. It's not the 20s. But um, quit smoking. Save money, right? Save money, and then volunteer to help others. Now, this was taken from a, a recent poll, and so these are, 10 of the most popular things that people probably, I don't know, throughout the world, but definitely in our nation, that they feel are important and they're going to be resolute to, to tackle these things. Now, how many people participate in making resolutions, a resolution or resolutions? Statistically speaking, it appears that a little over half of the U.S. population participates in this yearly practice. You can put this next statistical thing up. Out of 7,000 people surveyed, 42.9% will make no resolutions. They've just given up, right? Or they don't care. 21.5 will make one. 11.3 will make two. And I think this is interesting. 7.2 will make three. That's weird, right? There's a weird, I mean, you've got this high number above it and a high number below it. 17.1, um, a strong majority will make four resolutions. Four. So this is like a, this is a real legitimate statistic out of 7,000. Now, if you just broaden that, I think that that 
you know, 9%, that's more than half of these folks, relate that to the nation. It really is a big game that we play in this nation. It really is a thing that we engage in. So a lot of people make resolutions, a resolution or multiple resolutions. A lot of people do that. Now, in most instances, resolutions, okay, are more geared towards undoing the bad habits that people develop during the prior year or years before instead of towards some new adventure or hobby. Eight out of the ten resolutions that I mentioned on that top ten most popular list are exactly so, right? I packed on too many pounds last year, and this year I have to work it off. I, I ate too much junk food last year, a lot of Mickey D's, and this year I'm going all organic. I'm pledging to do that. Let me just warn you if that's you. That's a good thing, but it's going to cost you a billion dollars. We tried that. Organic food is major bank. But do it anyways. I started drinking too much booze. This is great. I started drinking too much booze last year or the year prior to that, and now I need to cut back. I realize that uh, I drink too much. Um, I got myself in debt last year or in the years before, and now I need to manage that or I need to pay it off. I started smoking in 1986 or whatever. Some of you weren't even born then. And this year I'm going to quit. This is the year that I'm going to quit. And I remember in 95, at the turn of the year, coming into 95, that was one of the resolutions that I had made. And I actually did it. It's amazing. Um, but like I said, I chewed candy, and I'd even smoke cigars for like two years after that. So did I really quit? No, I kind of eased myself off of it. But if you think about it, resolutions are really targeted towards undoing what we've done, aren't they? I drink too much of this. I do too much of this. I've done this. Uh, I jacked up Jimmy last year, and so this year's the year that I'm going to make amends with Jimmy or Sally or whoever. They are really about undoing. And now some people make cool ones like, I'm going to take a trip. That's kind of a visionary type of resolution. You know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do this this year. I've never done that before. I'm going to, people do this all the time. I'm going to skydive. You know, try to become a human slinky or something. I don't know, you know. Oh, that wasn't a good idea, you know. Uh, but rarely are resolutions about something new and exciting and venturing into new territory. They're always about, almost always about reversing the foolish things that we've chosen to do or get ourselves involved in. Now, with that being said, resolutions can become nothing more than a way for us to manage our sinful patterns and tendencies. And sin management can be very dangerous. Why? Because sin management usually leads to, to extraordinarily unprofitable things, despair or self-righteousness. When we fail to manage our sins well, to have mastery over them, um, to give a valiant effort, you know, to nail them down, to obliterate these things. When we fail to manage our sins well or appropriately, we tend to despair. Man, I just, I just can't. You know, I, I set this resolution to, to, to tame my tongue. In 2012, it proved to be a futile effort. What will I ever do? I cannot tame my tongue. 
And then so often when we can't have mastery over these things for whatever reason, we're just weak, we despair. We despair over the things that we can't get victory over, over those constant struggles. We often become hopeless and depressed. Man, I just can't do this. I just can't get past this thing. So trying to manage your sin leads to despair if you don't do very well at it. But when we manage our sins well, (laughs) as if we could, but I think sometimes we do pretty well in regards to this thing or that thing or whatever. This is a pitfall too. When we do well at managing our sins, we tend to get puffed up with pride. We become self-righteous. Man, I'm good. I, I, I can't believe how I dealt with that particular issue. I said that last year I drank too much, and this year I didn't. And, and so, bam, look at, look at what I have achieved. Look at what I have done. And so you have this sort of dual-edged sword here. When you try to manage your sin, you end up with despair, or you end up with self-righteousness. And, and we all know that self-righteousness leads to some pretty horrific things, as well as disparity. But self-righteousness often leads to comparison. We look at people and their actions, and we say, I'm so much better than that person. I don't do what they do. Or look, they're still smoking, and I don't smoke, therefore I'm better than them. We may not verbalize those things, but those are the thoughts that we entertain. We think that, wow, since we did so well at this, and they obviously are not good at it. We are better than them. I'm reminded of the Pharisee who was standing before the mercy seat of God next to a Pharisee, or a Pharisee standing next to a tax collector. And he beat his breast and he cried out before the mercy seat, thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there. Man, thank God I'm not a heathen like that. We talk about self-righteousness. How often do we claim these same things over those around us? Maybe to not that extreme, to that level of extremeness. But we still say these things, do we not? We make these comparisons. Well, I'm telling you that self-righteousness is usually what drives that and motivates those comparisons. Now, I'm not referring to looking at how other men teach the word and these things as pertaining to the church, you know, and these things that are very important like we see so much error in the church today and in teaching and in other avenues and other ways in the church and to point those things out and to aim to do things biblically and all that, that's different. But when we're talking about sin management and managing our own lives well and then making comparisons to those who can't or don't seem to care, man, that's just absolute self-righteousness. You know, rather than imparting a steady flow or putting out a steady flow of love and grace to our loved ones, to our neighbors. We're putting out a steady flow of criticism and correction. When you become filled with self-righteousness because you're good, you become good at managing your sin, man, instead of loving people, instead of sharing the gospel with them, instead of imparting grace and mercy to them, it's usually criticism. It's usually correction. Well, let me tell you something right now, and I think there's people here, if you've experienced this as I have, you're going to agree with me, but there isn't anything worse. I can't, I guess there's things that could be worse 
But in my mind, as far as church and doing the life, Christian life and living out the faith with people, there isn't anything worse um, than being around self-righteous, judgmental, holy correctors. They're just miserable. In fact, I'd rather be dipped in catnip and thrown in a lion's cage than to spend 15 minutes with one. Seriously. Now, I love when we have brothers and sisters around us who are trying to, in love and in grace, admonish us towards holiness and exhort us towards holiness. I mean, that's beautiful. But have you ever been around one of those people that just picks you apart every little thing that you do? Like, you just can't do anything right. And so often they compare you to what they're doing or to others that they know. But most of the time it's like, why are you doing this? Why do you do that? Why do you? They just nitpick and nitpick and nitpick as if they've got things cornered, as, as if they've mastered these things. You know, I love how Jesus says, man, before you go to a brother or sister, make sure you don't have a log cabin in your eye. Make sure you don't have, you know, you're, you're talking about the speck in his eye, but you've got, you know, Lincoln logs falling out of your eyes, you know, for crying out loud. But have you ever been around somebody like that? Do you know somebody like that today? Are you that somebody? I've been around people like that. I've worked around people like that. I've, I'm pretty sure I've been that way towards others at times. Sometimes we get so um, frustrated with people's behavior, you know, that that's what comes out of us instead of more grace and love and at least loving correction. But those people are really, really tough to be around, and I've been around many in my life, and I can tell you right now, God by his providential grace, has me around people who are just as screwed up as I am. And man, if they're going to say something to me, they're weighing that against themselves, and they're saying, hey, you stink, and so do I, so let's stink together or let's improve. I mean, that's who God has surrounded me with right now. I don't have these people badgering me all the time like I did before. Such a cool thing. Now, with that being said, since the resolution idea, since the sin management idea, since that concept and that practice can be such a dangerous thing, does that mean that we should just forget about our bad habits? Does that mean that we should just forsake our sinful patterns? Should we just disregard those things, not ponder them, not consider them, not, you know, move towards action against those things? Not at all. These things are important. God takes these things very seriously, and so should we. But how should we deal with them then? What should we do about those things? May I suggest to you that we need to shift. What we need to do is we need to experience a shift in our focus. We need to shift our focus truly away from ourselves, away from our efforts, onto Jesus, who cares more about us than we do, and who has real power to change us. That's the direction that we need to go in. Instead of taking all of these little things and these inconsistencies and trying to nail each one down and threatening ourselves with despair because our efforts are futile or with self-righteousness because sometimes we do well, instead of playing that game, making the resolutions, making the vows and pacts, making a list and going after these things head on, maybe what we ought to do is turn our eyes on to Jesus who actually cares more for us and about us than we can even conceive. And who actually died at Calvary 
to win a decisive victory over these sins and patterns and our depravity. That's what he did. He did this incredible work. He continues to work in us as he sanctifies us. So why would we make these lists and get our focus on these issues when what we need to do is focus on the one who actually really can change us, who is determined to change us, who has sent the Holy Spirit to us to change us, who lives within us and creates sanctifying work inside of us and it comes out and bubbles out. We need to shift our focus away from our own personal efforts, our own, what we perceive to be an ability to change, change these things ourselves. We need to shift away from that line of thinking unto Christ and keep our eyes fixed on him. Now, if we're going to make a resolution for the coming year, if we're going to play along with the rest of culture and society, because this isn't something that the church has practiced. Search church history, search the scriptures, and find somewhere in there where it says, set some goals and do these things. Each, each year, do this. Just try to find the practice. If we are going to follow what I say is a bit of a worldly pattern here, especially in the U.S., by making these resolutions, then our resolution should be a singular one and it should be to know Christ more. You know, I love Puritan theology because the way the Puritans thought, and they were just as wicked and sinful as us, that they had this sort of, they developed this sort of through prayer and study and these things, this sort of God-entranced vision of all things. That they became so lost in Christ, so captivated by him and his person and his work, that they didn't have time to get themselves involved in smoking and all these things. Their time was invested in Christ Jesus in knowing him more. And I'm telling you right now, if we're going to make a resolution, that's the resolution that we should make. On Friday, just a couple days ago, Driscoll posted this on Twitter and on Facebook, and I think I, I have it here. You can put it up on the screen, Colin. Just a simple little quote that you would pass by in a nanosecond, not give any attention to, but it's far more profound if you just look at it in light of what I've been saying. You cannot meet Jesus and not change whether at the onset of your salvation or at any point in your life of salvation, you cannot meet Jesus and not change. If you haven't changed, you haven't met the real Jesus. Just simple and so incredibly true. Meeting Jesus means change. A continuation of meeting Jesus means Change. Sure, at the onset of your salvation, when the Lord came to you and revealed himself to you, you were changed. You became a new creation, a new person. And this life of faith that you live out, where you're constantly interacting with Jesus and meeting with him in his word and through prayer and through others in these things, you are being changed. When you are exposed to Christ, you are changed. 
me ask you this. Do you really want to be different in 2013? Do you want to shake some of those habits? Do you want to be taken to new heights in your faith in life? If so, be resolved to know Jesus more. Think about this for a moment. Maybe you could do a little experiment after church today or this in the coming week. Go back and read the last paragraphs or the last couple of paragraphs of each of the epistles, those small letters in the New Testament. Go back and look at the last few sentences, the last couple of paragraphs in those places and see if you can find where the apostles commended or exhorted their readers to set some goals and to make some vows and to work on managing their sins and overcoming these sorts of things. You would think that if this man who's filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, takes the time to write to a church because he loves Christ and he loves the church, you would think that with all that prep and Holy Spirit leading and all these things involved, when he comes to the Holy Word of God and he's going to end his letter, he's going to finish up writing what he's been writing to these people, that he would say something along those lines if it was that important. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that we don't find place, you know, passages in the epistles where maybe the Apostle Paul commends us or exhorts us to put to death the things of the flesh. We see those sorts of things in Scripture. But we don't see vows. We don't see resolutions. And most certainly, whenever those things appear, they're all done within the power of the Holy Spirit. But go back and look at the epistles. Look at those short letters and try to find one instance where one of the apostles says, in the coming months, in the coming years, or whatever it is, set some goals for yourself and, and, and get over that old wicked sin, that old wicked habit that you have. I could save you some time and tell you that you won't find anything like that. In fact, what you will find are more encouragements to dive deeper into Christ, to engage in Christ-centered activity, gospel-centered activity, to engage in prayer and other things. Those are the kinds of things that you'll find. The emphasis in the epistles ultimately is always on Christ Jesus. It's always on Christ-centered activities like prayer and so on. Take, for instance, the end of the epistle to the Colossians. I love that book. I've taught through it. It's a great short letter. Listen to what the apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 4, 2-6. He wrote... Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, if anything at all, what the Apostle Paul has said to do here is to not focus at all on ourselves. Pray 
in thankfulness. Pray for me that I would have additional, I'm languishing in prison, pray for me that while I'm in prison, I would have opportunities to proclaim the mysteries of Christ Jesus, the gospel. You're talking about the most non-self-focused exhortation that you can get here. Watch how you speak with those around you. Speak in wisdom to them. Quite the opposite. But what about the epistle to the Ephesians? Listen to how Paul wraps up this letter in Ephesians 5, 10 to 18. Set a goal to overcome smoking. Verse 10. Wait. Focus entirely on yourself in the coming year. Gain mastery over your sin that you can be filled and puffed up with self-righteousness. It doesn't say anything like that. Listen to what it says. Verse 10 of 5. Finally, be strong in the Lord. You can't be strong unless you're in the Lord. Be strong. Draw your strength from Him is what he says. Wow. Don't operate in your own strength. He says what? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, he's warning them. You're going to engage in spiritual warfare. First of all, get your strength from the Lord, draw it from Him, and wrap yourselves in armor. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Don't lose your assurance of faith because of human weakness and because of human effort, is what he says. 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. What an exhortation. Now, there are some, uh, there is a bit of a focus on self here, but it's not go out and fight against your sin and the forces of darkness on your own. Man, are you kidding me? Clothe yourself in Christ. Get your strength from him. Put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth in these things. You're going to engage in spiritual warfare as a new creation, as a Christian. So there's some emphasis on self, but it's certainly not about going out and attacking our own sin issues and things. And what about the epistle of James? In the second to last paragraph, the apostle James actually commanded his readers not to make promises, not to make oaths, and I would classify a resolution as one of those. He literally commends them not to do those things. James 5, 12. He says, but above all, my brothers. Okay, I've written you this letter. You've read it. Above all, my brothers, do not swear. He's not talking about profanity. He's talking about making an oath. Either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. 
but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What's he saying? Don't play the game. Don't make promises that you can't keep. And guess what? You won't keep them. Every one of us in here has probably made a resolution or six and failed to accomplish them. I know I have. And I think it's bigger and broader than just mere resolutions, but I think resolutions fall into the category here. We set these things up and put them in place. And ultimately, as sinners saved by grace, we fail. Some of these things we pledge before a holy God. And I think that that's his reference. Don't do it. Don't you do that. Some of them we do before our brothers and sisters and people around us. I say don't do it. Have you already spouted off a list of things that you're going to nail down this year to your friends? I'm pledging myself to just nail these things down. I think James says, take heed. And he knows, he knows that his readers would fail. God knows that you'll fail. And God knows that Christ did not fail. Where should we put our focus? On nailing these things down ourselves? Or on trusting and abiding in Christ? Now, what I'd like to do this morning is take a look at the last two lines of the Apostle Peter's final letter to his Gentile readers. This passage will help to solidify these things that I've already mentioned, to solidify Christ as our focus. And if we apply what we're about to learn, we will experience true change. We will reap a grand harvest, harvest of gospel fruit. We will. Now, in his first letter, Peter feeds Christ's sheep. He does what the Lord commanded him to do, feed my sheep. He feeds Christ's sheep by instructing them how to deal with persecution from outside the church. In this second letter, he teaches them how to deal with false teachers and evildoers who have come into the church. Now in our passage, three very important things will come out. Briefly, I'll say what they are. Number one. Peter's final warning about false teachers. Number two, Peter's exhortation for where to focus. Number three, Peter's doxology. Now I'd like to just pray quickly and read the passage and pray quickly and then we can apply it together. I'm looking at, again, 3, 18 to 19. Basically, they're the last two lines of this great epistle and we actually had the entire section the entire chapter read earlier thank you for that uh kevin that was you that read that right kevin kevin was that you that read it kevin just watched that the other day love that movie kevin way to distract them pastor phil okay chapter three second peter 18 17 and yeah, thank you. <laughs> I distracted myself. He says again, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, 
Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And then he says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he closes it out with this. This is a great letter he closes with. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, um, we pray now, Lord, that you would apply the things that we've already learned and heard uh, to our hearts, God. Impress them upon us. Uh, we desire to make Christ our focus, Lord. Um, but help in this time, too, Lord, to keep us focused on this teaching, to keep us focused on your word and to apply these additional truths that will just sort of ram these things home, solidify them. Apply them, Lord, change us through them, um, and may our hope and love and grace and all that we are and all, all that we desire to be rest completely in Christ Jesus. Apply these things, protect us now, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, the first thing that we see, as I mentioned, is, and you can put it up on the screen, is Peter's final warning about false teachers. We saw it in 17. He says, You therefore, beloved, the Christians, the church, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Who were these lawless uh, people? Who were these lawless people, these lawless ones that Peter mentioned? What errors were they promoting? I think these things are completely valid to where we're going. The lawless people were men who came into the church and acted like Christian pastors, Christian teachers, Christian evangelists, but were nothing more than false teachers, false evangelists, false preachers, pastors, what have you, false shepherds. These men rejected, and I did a little bit of research, I wanted to know what their error was, and, and if you look at the entire letter of 2 Peter, you'll see the core of their heresies and the things that they rejected, but the, they rejected these essential Christian doctrines, some of the core ones, like the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay, they didn't believe, and they taught others that you know, that lordship salvation, this idea of Jesus being Lord, is a false theology. That you can be saved without making him your Lord. And we see so clearly in scripture that if he isn't your Lord, he isn't your savior. Because Lord is a title that he bears just as savior and deliverer is. And so they went around teaching that, you know, he's not the sovereign Lord. They rejected that incredibly important doctrine about Jesus. They rejected the virgin birth. They were like Rob Bell. They just rejected the fact that Jesus came through a virgin. Okay, they misinterpreted the Hebrew text back in Isaiah or wherever it is and, and they, you know, they came up with their own sort of theology or lie that described how Jesus came and that, you know, therefore he didn't come through a virgin. Um, they rejected bodily resurrection. You know, the apostle Paul said, man, if we reject that doctrine, we have no salvation. They rejected the reality of Jesus' own resurrection. They rejected the idea of a future 
bodily resurrection for the saints. I mean, these are, these are like no-brainer sort of doctrines. These aren't, you know, ones that are very important, but, you know, there's, there's room for debate on them because Scripture isn't, you know, exhaustingly clear on some of these things. I mean, these are fundamental. Man, if you're a Christian, you believe these things. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Another one, they rejected, they fully rejected, and we saw Peter admonishing or exhorting his listeners to not reject the end times, but they ultimately rejected the second coming of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe he was coming back. These four things are the errors that they spread in the church amongst believers. These are the things that were, they were always proclaiming. MacArthur generalized their heresy Uh, In kind of a simple sentence, he wrote, The false teacher's basic error is that they will not submit their lives to the rule of Christ. Somehow, their belief afforded uh, some respect and reception of Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, not as Sovereign, not as King of Kings. Now, we can be saved somehow by him and trust in him, but we don't have to submit to his lordship. Ultimately, what they're saying is we don't have to submit to his lordship, his rule, his reign. We don't have to obey him, what he taught. That's essentially what you're saying if you reject the lordship of Jesus. When they came into the church, they tried to unseat the believers by arguing against these fundamental doctrines, probably more. They tried to convince them that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. They tried to convince them that Jesus was not who the apostles claimed that he was. They would say Jesus is neither sovereign or the Lord, so you don't have to submit to him and you cannot rely on him. Jesus did not come from a virgin, which means that he has a sin nature like us, therefore he cannot be God. Oh, he can be some earthly-style deliverer and king like King David, but he's not this God-man that he proclaimed to be. Jesus did not experience a bodily resurrection. Therefore, salvation is not entirely in him, not completely in him. There's more to it than that. Jesus is not coming back. So don't try to live your life in a particular way with the expectation that he's coming back. Don't wait for him. Do something now. He's not coming back. He already came. He's done. That is what they believed and taught. Boiled down, they simply taught people, since Jesus is not who he claimed to be, you better rely on yourself. You better rely on your religion. You better rely on your own efforts. You better earn your way. You better obey us. Get in line with us. Do what we do. Copy us. Be circumcised. Obey the law. Do what we do or you're doomed. You better do right. What these men offered these Christians was that same old dirty religion that they had been rescued from. The religion of self-focus. The religion of self-reliance. The religion of self-effort. 
that is the religion of this world. That is the religion of this nation. Now, don't resolutions in some way fit into the category of that style of religion? They certainly can if you're attempting to change yourself because that is the very essence of American religion. Be a good person. Change yourself. In the day of judgment, when the scale is brought forth, your good will outweigh the bad. Therefore, God will say, Peter, swing the gate wide for my son. Let him in. That is the religion of this world. That is the religion of this nation. Resolutions are derived from the felonious precepts of this world. Resolutions, listen carefully, resolutions are a means by which people seek to make an atonement for their wrongdoings. This year, I'm going to rewrite last year's wrongs. I'm going to defeat those things that I probably shouldn't have done that I did last year. I'm going to get mastery over those things. I'm going to manage them well. And then when I do so, I'll become a better, more productive, more lovable person. That's what people believe. That's absolutely what people believe. Some of them take it to the extreme to say that God will have no choice but to receive me because of my valiant effort and because of my, the good job that I've done managing my sin. He'll accept me. He'll receive me into his kingdom. My friends, it's all religion. It's false religion. And false religion is the broad road to destruction. Peter warned them, paraphrase, Christians, you are aware of these false teachers and their ideas. Do not lose your stability by being carried away by their heresies. Don't believe the false doctrines that they teach. Don't follow their ways. Don't do it. Peter then, he then exhorts them to focus elsewhere. Number two up on the screen, Peter's exhortation for where to focus. Don't focus on the false teachers. I've called them out. You've heard their errors. Don't focus on following their ways and earning their way and going back to that tired, old, nasty, dirty, profitless religion of works righteousness. Don't Go back to that. Don't focus on yourself, on your efforts. Don't make those vows. Don't do those things. Don't become self-actualized and self-focused and self-effort motivated. Don't do it. And what does he say? Verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's where he tells him to focus. Don't focus on the liars. Don't focus on yourself because that's the lie they're perpetuating that it's up to you. Focus on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is where we should put our focus and energy. 
we should resolve ourselves to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in 2013. Now, how does one grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord? I'll turn to Spurgeon. He's far more brilliant than I'll ever be as a preacher. He just has this Holy Spirit-saturated way of writing that's just biblical, scriptural, and just amazing. Listen to what he said. When this question was asked, he literally preached a sermon similar to this, not exactly like mine. His was a lot better, but on at the turn of a year in like 1881 or something like that, how timeless the word of God is. But he says this in response to how do we grow in the grace and knowledge? He says the answer is simple. Really? Yeah. He says, he who gave you grace must give you more of it, exclamation point. <laughs> I don't know if I would even make that claim. And he does it boldly at that metropolitan tabernacle. He stands up and says, you must demand it from he who gives it to you. It's only in him that gives it to you. Go to him, he says. He must give you more of it. He says, where you first received your grace, there you must receive the increase of that divine grace. He who made the cattle and who created man was the same who afterwards said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So he who has given you grace must speak with the fiat of his omnipotence in your heart and say to that grace, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the soul till its native emptiness shall be filled and the natural wilderness shall rejoice and blossom like a rose. Obviously, you can see the difference between my preaching and his. <laughs> Mine is so much better than this. And he says this, but at the, <laughs> I stink. He says, but at the same time, we would have you use the means. And those means are much prayer, a more diligent search of the sacred scriptures, a more constant fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, greater activity in his cause, an earnest attendance upon the means of grace, a devout reception of all revealed truths of God, and so forth. He says, if you do these things, you shall never be stunted or dwarfed. For he who has given you life will thus enable you to fulfill the word which he has spoken to you by his apostle. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ brilliant and so true according to Spurgeon how do we grow in grace seek the giver of grace because only he can increase it do you think that if you were to pray out to the Lord I need more grace well the tank's a little low today Phil you're going to have to wait till next week do you think that the father of lights do you think the father of grace, the father of mercy, the author of our salvation, do you think that he's going to hold back grace? Maybe he'll just break the dam over your head of grace. He's been doing that with me for about 11, 12 years now since I've been saved. He just 
pours it out freely and abundantly upon his children all the time, whether you're seeking it or not. What happens when we begin to seek it fervently in prayer? According to Spurgeon, how do we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? We must utilize the tools that he has given us so that we can grow in the knowledge of him. Spurgeon listed six things. I don't know if you picked up on them. Number one was much prayer. Pray to know the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Commune with him. Speak with him. Listen to him. He reveals himself to his children through prayer. Number two, diligently search the scriptures. Not crack open your Bible once in a while or every Sunday. He says diligently. He uses that word diligently. Diligently search the sacred scriptures. Boy, do we neglect the reading and meditation and study of his word. Think about this for a moment, and I should probably save this till I get to the last one. But we tend to wonder why we're in the condition that we're in at times. And why have I picked up these habits? And why have I done these things? And why do I do these things? Now, why must I deal with these things? Well, for one thing, we're not praying enough. Number two, we're not searching and diligently seeking out the Scripture and reading the Scripture and studying the Scripture. Which means that we're not being changed or transformed. It's in God's truth. It's in His Word. That's, ultimately, that's how He changes people. By people seeking it out and studying it and reading it and applying it through the power of the Holy Spirit. I used to talk about this with junior hires all the time. When I was a junior high pastor, they'd come to me all the time. Oh my gosh, I can't do this and I'm doing this and I'm having such a hard time. And, you know, and I, I keep sinning, and I keep doing this, and I do that, and I keep chasing the girls always. Ah, you know, there are ten girls would love one dumb guy. Dad, the guy was like, Dad, you know, and oh, I love him. You know, he looks British. You know, that guy's, what are you doing? Why do you fall for those guys? Why are you pursuing those things? Why do you do those things? How often do you pray at meals? All right. How often do you read the word? Never? And you wonder why you're in the condition that you're in and why you keep giving in to all of these patterns and habits and sins and things? He says, diligently search the scriptures. And then he says, three, consistent fellowship with Jesus. Well, I think that's done through prayer. I think that's done through reading his word, meditating on his word. I think that's done with associating and hanging out with God's people. There's a number of ways that we fellowship with the Lord. Consistent, he says, not occasional, consistent. Daily, moment by moment. Number four, greater activity in the cause of the gospel. You want to know one of the greatest ways to literally be changed? I, I would say that when I first got saved, I immediately, for whatever reason, God led me to begin to serve. I didn't know diddly squat. I knew Jesus saved me. I knew he was my Lord. That was about it. My gospel presentation was this. You're going to hell. You need to repent. Needless to say, I never turned anyone from their sin, especially my own family. But I didn't know Jack. 
I just knew Jesus loved me. He died for me. He saved me. And I was a different person. I loved him. I loved the things of church. When people did this when they were worshiping, I didn't go, look at those morons. I used to do that. I was doing this now. Look, I'm a moron. I got my hands up. I didn't know Jack. But I began to serve the Lord immediately and got involved in the cause of the gospel and began to love students and do student ministry. And I can tell you right now, prayer and studying God's word, those were huge in my sanctification and process, but serving was massive too. Spending my time serving his cause was a vehicle not only for me to serve him, to serve others, to love others, to love my neighbors. That was great. But it, when I reflect back on it, it was more about my own sanctification, my own learning, my own growth than the output that I was sharing with others. It was more of an inward transformational thing. And I bet if you were to talk to somebody who's wrestling through all these things and their life is perpetually, habitually haunted by these little sins and these things all the time, ask them how often they serve the Lord, they of how often they serve others. Only 15% of God's church as a whole tithe and serve. And you wonder why Christians or so-called Christians live the way they do and are perpetually haunted by things that the Lord died to give them victory over because they don't serve, they don't pray, they don't diligently search the sacred scriptures. And he says greater activity, which means that if you're already involved in some activity, take it to a higher level. Five, earnestly attend the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Where's the gospel proclaimed? At churches most of the time. Obviously, we're out gossiping it and sharing it verbally with people in relationship or whatever. But the means of grace are things like his sacraments, like communion. That is a means of his grace. Coming and hearing the gospel preached, hearing the word of God proclaimed, that's a means of his grace. You want to boil down what he said? Go to church. Stay in church. The thing that boggles my mind is the level of inconsistency amongst Christians today in their church attendance. You know, we look at Christianity, we look at church like it's an option. It's one more thing that's on the list of amenities on this vehicle we're about to buy. Christian life and attending church and those things. Those are an amenity that we can add on and that we can do at our own leisure. That's the way that we look at the Christian life. That's the way that we look at Jesus here in the good old U.S. And we treat church, we treat the fellowship, we, teach the proclaim, or we treat the proclaiming of his word, the sacraments, all these things as these are just optional things that I can do at my own leisure whenever I want. And I say, you're absolutely wrong. You are wrong if you believe that. People believe that, that Christ died to save people and he rescues them from damnation apart from his church. He saves no one apart from his church. No one. All truly saved people become a part of his church, universal. And they've got to become a part of a local assembly. That's the way that it works. There's no discipleship apart from the fellowship. And we think that, well, you know, I don't have to go to church regularly. It's an option for me. It's a good thing. I like it when I go, but it's not really a mandatory thing, something that I should take to put at that level of seriousness. And I say, yes, you should. Why? 
Because if you're not here, you're not being changed. Maybe that's an explanation for why you keep doing what you do and you can't get over these things. Maybe the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is so minuscule in your life because you're not engaging in his means of grace. Where the Spirit is taking the truths that you're learning through that engagement and solidifying those things and strengthening and growing those things and, and, and cultivating them in your life and you're being changed. You're becoming a newer creation moment by moment because you're not engaging. Earnestly attend the means of grace. Go where the gospel is being proclaimed. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. Get baptized. Attend baptisms. Watch people give testimony. And watch the grace of God, how it's changed someone, causing them to go forth and to make a declaration of their faith. I mean, attend the means of grace. Earnestly. Make a commitment to be a church. Number six, devotion to receiving and applying the revealed truths of God. Let me tell you something right now. You want to know what one of our greatest dangers is? It's playing ear service only. We hear these things, and yet we don't apply them. We listen. We hear what the preacher says. We, we listen to what the word of God says. But are we applying what it says? I mean, we believe these things, right? Oh, yeah, you're right, man. I know that's the key. Are we going to apply these things and then live them out? Agreeing without obedience is nothing. It's false faith. James 2.17, faith without works, I'd say the works of the Spirit is dead faith. We believe these things because they are true. They're scriptural. We must not only believe. We must not only hear, listen, and agree. We must obey. Let me tell you right now, holiness and obedience are not important things in the church today. They're not. Not in all church circles, but in most. They're not important. People have taken the grace of God to such an extreme that they can just remain as they are and still have Jesus. Know that the Bible says repeatedly over and over and over that Jesus saves unto himself a holy people. What does holy mean? It means obedient. It means different. It means set apart. We must obey what we acknowledge as the truth of what we're seeing. Apply and obey. Much prayer, diligent search of the scriptures, consistent fellowship with Jesus, greater activity in the cause of the gospel. Earnestly attend the means of grace, devotion to receiving and applying the revealed truths of God. How do you grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? By implementing the means by which he has given us as an complete gift of grace do these things do them let's look at the last thing illustrated in the text number three Peter's doxology doxology is a liturgical 
expression of praise to God. Peter closes this letter with a brief but poignant doxology. Look at verse 18. Now keep in mind that he's not, he hasn't hung this beautiful little doxology, very simple thing on the end of my little sermon. He's hung it on the end of his letter. This is how he closes the entire letter. Not just Phil's sermon or 17 and 18. In the end, this is how he ends it. He says, to him, who? Jesus. To Jesus be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. In a way, Peter stated that Jesus is not only worthy of our focus, of our attention, of our energy in knowing him more, setting our focus on him rather than peripheral and the other things. In a way, he's saying, man, Jesus is not only worthy of our focus, but of our praise and of all the glory now and forevermore. Let me ask you this. If we are focused on ourselves, if we are focused on our efforts, if we are focused on managing our sins, how can we at the same time praise and glorify the Lord? If we fail to manage our sins well and are overcome by despair, how can we at the same time praise and glorify the Lord? If we are successful at managing our sins and then become prideful, self-righteous, and even judgmental, as I mentioned, how can we at the same time praise and glorify the Lord? The answer to all three is we cannot. But isn't the goal of a Christian's life to glorify the Lord? What did the Apostle Paul write in 1 Corinthians 10, 31? He says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Self-focus means self-glory. Self-effort means self-glory. Now here's the bottom line. If you're going to make a resolution for 2013, make it about knowing Christ more. Make it about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Make it about Him and His glory. I promise you this. If you are willing to lose yourself in 2013 will be your best year yet. If you are willing to take yourself out of the equation and fix your eyes on the Redeemer, the Sanctifier, the King of Kings, the one who changes us, if you are willing to lose yourself in Him, it will be your best year yet. Things will change. They will. You will experience Christ and victory over sin in ways you've only read and dreamed about. Why was the Apostle Paul such a great Christian? Why? Because he said this, and his life was about this, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul had a Jesus-entranced vision of all things. That was his focus. We marvel at his example in life. 
Look at what he did. His entire life was about Jesus. And that's why he was who he was. Paul was, in so many ways, a tremendous canvas for the Lord to work in and through and on because he literally emptied himself of him, knowing that there was nothing good there in himself, knowing that all effort was futile, knowing that only in Christ that he could make any sort of achievement or anything. In fact, he gives a, a great list of all of his qualifications, a Hebrew of Hebrew and all of these things, a Pharisee persecuting the church. I mean, this guy was the most qualified, most amazing Pharisee ever. And he says, it's all rubbish. It was all rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. I'm telling you, if you lose yourself in 2013 in Christ, you will experience him in ways that you've only read and dreamed about. Now, this isn't easy. Not in this self-absorbed, self-focused culture. But I do believe that it is possible if we are diligent in keeping our eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus. We cannot say that because of this consumer-based culture and me-centeredness that it's impossible because all cultures have similarities. They're all difficult to function in. We live in a fallen world. To say that it can't happen here, I think the Apostle Paul would scoff and laugh at us. He was in a, came up in a difficult culture of religion and earning and self-righteousness and works righteousness, just as jacked up as our culture is. Now, it isn't easy here, but I believe it's possible if we keep our eyes and hearts fixed on Christ. I want to close with a little more Spurgeon. He said this, Above all, let us long to know Christ in his person. This year, endeavor to make a better acquaintance with the crucified one. Study his hands and his feet. Abide hard by the cross. And let the sponge, the vinegar, and the nails be subjects of your devout attention. This year, seek to penetrate into his very heart and to search those deep, far-reaching caverns of his unknown love, that love which can never find a rival and can never know a parallel. And he said, if you can add to this a knowledge of his sufferings, you will do well. Let us, therefore, commit ourselves at this very moment to knowing Jesus more. Let us cry out to him for more of his marvelous grace and commit ourselves to growing in the knowledge of who he is. Let's employ those means of grace and those tools that he's given us let us be of one accord with the Apostle Paul who said, and I read it, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'll add, in 2013. Let us forsake our feeble efforts to change ourselves 
and rely solely on his person and upon his work, that being of Christ Jesus our Lord. And let us praise and glorify him. Let we live, let us together live a life of doxology in 2013 for him. Amen? I say, let's make these things our resolution for 2000.